0: And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, welcome back to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm Sarah Trott, and I'm here with Esther Gallagher. And we are here to record part three, the <laughs> final episode of Birth Plan or Birth Intentions. So let's pick up where we left off. I think we wanted to talk a little bit about induction and then C-sections. hmm Yeah. So I think that
1: it's common for folks to think that if they have to have an induction or have a planned C-section or if in the course of their labor, they have a C-section that, you know, all their preferences basically go out the window and they're going to have, you know, a terrible experience. But I want to just be the person that says out loud that that does not have to be the case induction can be quite natural and quite experienced the way a natural labor would be experienced. So long as your your birth team are people who can really support you in having that natural childbirth. And so all the things we talked about in terms of birth preferences previously could still be the case. Even if you have to show up at the hospital at 8 a.m. and go through a a process that's mediated by a little more intervention. It doesn't have to be one that you can't get through without Mm -hmm. avoiding where possible uh, drugs, epidural, etc. It does mean that you might want to really talk with a doula who feels skillful around supporting people during induction and knows how to help partners understand the the importance of intimacy for a mom who's going through induction and all the things we've talked about in the past. So uh, if people can kind of take the fear out of it and grieve for that wished for, you know, going into labor, quote unquote, naturally and on their own, if they can kind of process that and, for the time being, set it aside and have it just be part of their birth story um, rather than the thing that made everything go to hell. Um, I think people can actually have a wonderful experience with an induction so long as everything stays relatively healthy. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And if someone's induced, do they have to remain at the hospital? Yes. Yeah.
1: Part of the reason for that is that They want to be sure that you're responding to the the medicines that they're giving you to get you into labor and then move your labor along in a healthy way, and especially your baby. So typically one of the things, and we talked about this at the end of last week's uh, podcast, one of the things that you also have to Relinquish is um, intermittent monitoring because they're really going to want to be sure that your your contractions are normal in, in strength and duration and that your baby can tolerate them mm-hmm. because these medicines, um, you know, sometimes a woman's body will respond to them in ways that are a little kind of going overboard. Um, but I just want to say for the record that I've been at perfectly natural choppers where women have had labors that just their babies couldn't tolerate. You know, everybody's involved in this and everybody needs health care during this process, whether it's at home or the hospital. And, you know, one of the things that they're going to be careful of on your baby's behalf is that they can actually tolerate the contractions that you are having. Um. So while I don't like, I think we need new technology for fetal monitoring, and I think it's right around the corner, Mm -hmm. I hope, Um, uh, because of the discomfort to mothers, Uh, I do think that, you know, babies also need to be attended to during the course of labor. And so um, finding a way to do that in a healthy way. And, you know, there are some inductions that go so well that they do in, in, Intermittent monitoring. So it depends on your nurse, depends on your doctor's midwives, what they think is going to be the best route for your course of, of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, part of that depends on why you're being induced. Right. Right. So, so let's uh, from there move on to um, cesarean birth. Um, and in our preferences plan, Uh, for the person this one was written for. They've written, should cesarean birth be necessary? We would like both of us and our doula in the operating room. Please perform delivery respective of as much of our birth preferences as possible. Allow parents immediate contact with baby, if well, for as long as possible, and allow them to remain together while surgery is completed. I'm completely under, if I'm completely under general anesthetic for cesarean birth, I'd like my husband and doula to be present and for my husband to be the one to hold our baby first and throughout my procedure. So it's going to be very, very rare that those preferences as stated are going to be granted. Mm. When mothers are under general in the OR, they don't let anybody in, typically. Now, do I think that's good practice? No. I'm not impressed with that. I think... The family should stay together even when things are scary and and um, stressful. Uh, but I think the history of this procedure is such that they want to really reduce any wild card effect. At certain hospitals, they only allow one um, care provider in the room with a mother during uh, an. Uh, a C-section when there's not general anesthesia. So if there's an epidural or um, a spinal, then you can have one care provider with you during that, the course of that. And so that's a conversation that you would also have with the, your partner and doula about, you know, who's prepared to be in the OR um, and what will their focus be the reason I always think it would be nice if both doula and partner can be in the room is that, of course, in most families, um, the desire is, for to, is to have a family member who can be in physical and emotional and social contact with the baby uh, as soon as possible, right? And so in the OR, they... Um, once the baby is born, the baby and in the, in the cord clamped. They usually take the baby to the warmer, and pediatricians are examining the baby. Um, and so the partner can be can go to the warmer, greet the baby, say hello, talk to mom who's not very far away, and tell her, "Oh, you know they're doing well," and you know, or, or whatever, right? Um, so that there's a way of staying in voice contact during the procedure if possible. Um, and then, you know, there is something we now refer to as family centered C-section where actually they do put the baby on the mom and they do lower the screen and, you know, you just get to see more and participate in more. And that's just such a lovely thing. And unfortunately it's not standard operating procedure mm-hmm. Uh, You do have to find
0: the team that's willing to do your your C-section birth that way. Yeah, I just look at movies and I think that's that's always what happens. Mom's awake, she's kind of out of it, all dragged up, and then baby comes out and they lay her on her chest and she says, "Oh my baby!" And then of course the actor baby is like a three month old, yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> who looks lovingly yeah. into the mother's eyes, yeah, yeah. What what determines if someone is put under general anesthesia or not? Well, emergency it, versus yeah,
1: kind of typically thing? an emergency. Um, C-section is going to be one that that results from a baby going into deep distress, mm-hmm. and that means that they're um, they're not probably getting enough oxygen for some reason. We typically um, imagine that that's a cord problem, and uh, like wrapped around their neck or something. Wrapped around their neck or pinch, you know, it's prolapsed and it's pinching between the baby's bones and the mother's pelvis or something of that nature we can't always determine it in advance but we're imagining that or there just isn't enough placental oxygen diffusion
0: to Mm -hmm. keep that baby afloat i've uh i've had friends um who said and they had and they had their baby um maybe 35 years ago now but uh she said that she uh, had her baby born with the cord around his neck. Person is fine now. <laughs> the baby was fine. Oh, but Cards. they came out. But they were blue. Yeah, you know, so they definitely had oxygen issues. Yeah.
1: So the blue thing um, could yeah. have to do with the cord and probably yeah. did, but not always. You know, it's interesting that babies can be born with tight cords around their neck and and recover very quickly and. It wasn't necessarily an issue during the birth, believe it or not. And then, of course, it can be a real problem. It can, if the cord is short or if there's many loops around the baby and therefore the cord doesn't have the run-out room to, mm-hmm. to make it all the way out the pelvis, then the baby might not even emerge. Oh, gosh, right. Yeah. So at some point, that's going to show up as this baby's not coming out yes. and maybe isn't going to and maybe now they're not having a good time, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, a a mom who's struggling to push a baby out and the baby just isn't descending no matter what is tried is plausibly going to also have a Mm C-section, even if the baby isn't in distress, right? If the assessment is, oh, well the baby's still way high in the pelvis, hasn't descended at all, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're growing a caput, but there's no bones coming down, Mm -hmm. then that may be a mother's pelvis that's narrow, right? Now, in the old days, this was an excuse for a lot of unnecessary C-sections. They could just say, you know, after you push three times, oh, (laughs) your baby can't get out. Um, Mm -hmm. Or even your baby's never going to get out, so you might as well not go through birth. So we're very, you know, we we have this legacy of a past of altogether unnecessary C-sections and and a high, high rate of C-sections being performed. But that has really, at least I would say in the Bay Area, for the most part, been absolutely corrected. Um, We still have C-sections in cases where we think the labor might have been managed better and we therefore might have had... Um, no need for the C-section, but um, but then are C-sections being uh, utilized in the, in the in all situations where they are necessary? So that's still a question, right? Mm-hmm. And um, recently heard a TED talk about uh, are we doing too many unnecessary C-sections and not enough necessary ones? And could we improve our our maternal-child health outcomes for labor and birth if we were doing more appropriate C-sections and fewer unnecessary ones? So it's this is an interesting question, and it's out in the world. And I think you know anyone who's going to be having a baby um, owes itself owes it to themselves and their child to really understand. What are the implications for a C-section, you know, planned or unplanned? Um, you know, many, many people to this day still say they would like to have an elective C-section. They're fearful of giving birth or they imagine it's going to change your body in some way that they prefer not to. And they're, they're asking for C-sections. And that is not good public health. That is not good individual health. So um, we know that, that labor and birth are good for good for the body, good for the mother, good for the baby.
0: Right. So, yeah, I've heard of a mentality of wanting to schedule the cesarean so you, so you know what day it is. and Yeah. I don't know. I, you can see the positive aspects. Of, if your C-section is necessary, then you know you can definitely focus on the positives there with the ability to plan and right. all of that stuff. But that in and of itself is sometimes used as a reason for one. Yeah. Just busy schedules or planning time Mm -hmm. off or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's a major surgery, right? It's it's a major surgery. Cutting through the skin of the belly. What else? Yeah. Then the
1: peritoneum, which is that fascia layer that um, uh, between or below the fat layer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That kind of holds... Everything inside the gut, and that's after the muscle layer. So we've got skin, fat, muscle, peritoneum, uterus. Mm-hmm. Okay, all of that has, and to the work. uterus is multi layers of muscle, interwoven muscle. So there's something like five to seven layers that that are going to be, you know, gone through and done. <laughs> then the baby emerges, and then all of that gets repaired. So it's quick to get in there, mm-hmm. right? The prep for the C-section doesn't typically take very long, but then all, each of those layers has to be repaired, Yeah, with the possible exception of the fat. <laughs> you know, I don't think they have to stitch that together, but every other layer has to be closed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that that can take... Half an hour. So a forty-five minute to one hour surgery is mostly repair. Mm-hmm. And what we know um, is that this that that humans are, are prone to adhesions, which is scar tissue that grows out into the body and tends to adhere to other tissue. And that's that's the legacy of abdominal surgery. That's not well performed, or that's well performed, but that requires such big incisions that there's going to be a lot of scar tissue. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so much, so much of of abdominal surgery these days is done laparoscopically. So the actual incisions are tiny um, comparatively. But if you're having a C-section, you have to have an incision that's broad enough to get the baby out of the body. Right. right. So that's what. Five, ten inches. Probably no. It's not more than five. It's probably um, it's it's probably seven centimeters, maybe across. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe ten. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking that it has to kind of grow circularly, right? So it's a straight incision that that's going to kind of expand into a circle as the baby's removed. Um, So. Probably five centimeters is about all that it takes, but I actually don't know. I've never measured it. <laughs> it's a good question.
0: Maybe um, different for different people and baby sizes. Sure. Yeah. So we've we've talked about cesarean for about a little over ten minutes. Yeah. And let me just end we can keep with that. Yeah. I will just
1: end with that. The reason for avoiding C-section for the mother health is is the the long term effects of the possibility of adhesions, as well as, you know, um, musculoskeletal things Mm. and just like we've talked about postpartum getting physical therapy for pelvic floor issues Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend that anybody who's had major surgery sign themselves up for physical therapy after the fact because the, the, the retraining of the musculoskeletal by a skillful professional is really good and obstetricians don't this isn't what they do they'll refer you to a specialist to to help you with this but i would say in terms of your healing and recovery Mm -hmm. everyone who's given birth no matter how they've done so if they can have access to some physical therapy for
0: assessment and therapy that would probably be good for everybody Yeah, so we have a great episode number twenty-two with Susie Mm Hately, who is a Canadian um, physical fitness guru, and she, um, you know, she herself has had twins. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and her, her, I think her sister had twins too. Mm It's kind of amazing in their family, and they, um, anyway, so they have firsthand experience of that recovery process, and she's helped many, many uh, pregnant women prepare and recover from pregnancy and childbirth. So. Um, Listen to that episode too, if you're kind of wondering what that like recovery physical aspect might, might be like, and, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to turn this into the C-section episode, but I I have to mention um, that, you know, some of the considerations around opting for a C-section, if it is an option for you, um, and this is something that I don't think is talked about that much, is sort of more of an emotional aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's come up in other episodes I want to say with uh, Shanti Smith. Mm-hmm. It definitely came up, which is episode 26. birth, mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. And I think Kimberly Johnson talked about it too, a little bit. And we've had two episodes with Kimberly. She's great. The kind of themes around that are if you have a vaginal birth, there's a different kind of connection that your body makes. And it's a sort of a subconscious connection than if there's a C-section birth and that sometimes women who have a C-section their bodies are waiting to give birth still, even though their babies have been born. And I know that's a funny concept and this won't Mm -hmm. be true for everyone, but it's something to think about that Mm -hmm. the body is expecting something. And our bodies are highly intelligent organisms that don't necessarily tell us what they're doing. You know, our heart beats without us telling it to do that. So there's systems and processes going on inside of ourselves Mm -hmm. that we don't consciously control. And, Chantier has mentioned working with mothers who need to sort of have the somatic experience or the the mind experience of having the baby vaginally so that their bodies can just relax and feel that they've done that. Yeah which, which their kind of completed right the circuit yes yeah yeah. Um, so anyway, something to think about it's not I think it's great. Yeah thanks for reminding us of that Sarah that's,
1: that's really true. brilliant. Yeah there's there are many levels at which we simultaneously are doing our healing work. -hmm. In our recovery work, so Mm -hmm. however we give birth.
2: Yep, right. That's
1: true. Yeah. So the next uh, and last segment of the preferences plan is talking about the immediate postpartum. So as the baby actually has emerged, and in the next um, couple of minutes and hours. So, I'll I'll read the what's written in this preferences plan and then we'll discuss it a little further each point so um, the first point on this plan is upon moment of birth the mother and partner would like undisturbed quiet time to bond with the baby and to establish breastfeeding as soon as the baby is ready which I think I would love every preferences plan to state this uh, unequivocally and I would love it if that's what I saw happening in the hospital setting, um, because it's very important. There's something um, lactation consultants now get to study, sort of the normal physiological process of of the immediate postpartum, and one of the things they that they they note again and again is that the natural process of emerging. Finding the mother's contact, you know, the baby finding contact with the mother and then on its own, in its own time, in its own particular way, doing what we like to call the breast crawl, right? Where the baby actually kind of moves themselves, mostly with their heads (laughs) and a little bit with those kicky legs that you've been feeling on the inside, um, and they and they basically will move along the mother's body and find a breast all by themselves, unassisted, latch themselves on, and have a good feed. Now, it's extremely rare when that's what gets experienced um, for, for the baby and, and the parents, and there is some amount of theorizing around the fact that so much of the first couple of weeks of breastfeeding is so problematic for so many moms and babies that this has to do with trauma experienced in those immediate postpartum moments. So the trauma may be the baby's trauma, it may be the mother's trauma, or maybe may be the, the dyad's trauma, or you know that can include the partner, of course. Um, and so at a recent uh, doula meeting, we were discussing breastfeeding, and a lactation consultant who is not a birth dealer said, this is how it's supposed to go. And all of us who go to birth, were shaking our heads going, that never, that's not what we see happening at all. That's not what we see happening. What we see happening is a baby emerges, is put on the mother's belly. One or two nurses moves in on that baby and starts rubbing the baby. Right, to, to, to warm it up, to get the amniotic fluid off so that they, the baby doesn't cool down, to stimulate the baby to cry if they haven't cried yet. So they're all, all this rationale around sort of pouncing on the baby with a lot of activity. I've seen uh, residents um, flick the baby's heels, which is extremely overstimulating for, for a newborn. Um, and it's all to make that baby cry so that we know that baby can breathe. So you used air quotes when you said warm the baby. i was just going to mention yeah, that. yeah. Well, the fear being that the baby will be cold, but you know, a mother who's just been pushing a baby out, I'm sure you remember Sarah, mm-hmm. is probably easily 98.6 if not a little warmer as a result of the physical activity of pushing their baby out. Mm-hmm. So a baby who lands on a mom is going to immediately be back
0: back in an environment of 98.6. Oh, yeah. They right. might be a little bit wet, but having that, yeah. the little person on the chest is so important emotionally, I think, yeah. for the mother, if that's possible, with you know, with all the physical stuff going yeah. on. Um, but just having that moment, and then, and then it, mom's body helps keep the baby's body yeah. warm, and you can put a little blanket. Usually you it's can a little put blanket a
1: blanket, blanket the over the top of both of them that's going to insulate, right? And will also absorb fluid so that if it becomes damp... You can replace it with another warm receiving blanket. Those Mm -hmm. are available. So um, while I understand, I I, I do honestly understand and honor why nurses are doing what they do, but I I also understand that it's part of a system that's very fearful Mm -hmm. and does not see the deeper implications for how we're treating mom and baby in those moments. So, um, you know, this was kind of an aha moment for the lactation consultant Mm -hmm. (laughs) who's never been to a birth. Like, oh, oh, and then they're diving in and rubbing the mother's tummy. If she doesn't have an epidural, she's going to really feel that and it's going to be very distractingly painful. We talk about that in this preferences document. Yeah, they're pulling on the cord. There are all kinds of activities to... To make the placenta deliver rather so sure. than allow the placenta to deliver, so all of this is happening simultaneous to the baby being born, and and can be quite traumatic. I mean, I've had moms say, "I can't hold the baby. I just can't hold the baby while all of this is going on."
0: Yeah. So then, yeah. so by stating clearly ahead of time, "Hey, look, we want some quiet time. I want to hold the baby, assuming that's safe, which mm-hmm. hopefully it is." Yeah. Um, then they have that time to kind of relax and have that moment. It's really painful to to have your belly rubbed too.
1: Yeah. It's very painful and distracting. And the fact is that um, from my perspective and perspective and based on my training, which I know is shared by probably now a minority of obstetricians, but I know that there are obstetricians who are trained by obstetricians who knew better than to manipulate the uterus and the, and the placenta Mm -hmm. and that, that allowing the mother, you know, an average of 20 to 30 minutes for her uterus to um, gather itself, right. It's had, you know, a seven pound baby taking up the space Mm -hmm. and now it's kind of a floppy bag and it's going to take time for the oxytocin to build up and squeeze that bag down into a size and with enough pressure to naturally uh, peel that uterus off the face of that muscle mass. This is normal. This is normal. the placenta. Yes, exactly. The placenta is going to peel away from the, the face of the uterus mm-hmm. and get pushed out by the uterus. But there is a time frame around that. Mm-hmm. And so allowing for that time frame. So when you have your preferences document, be specific. We want to allow up to 30 at least up to 30 minutes for the uterus to do its own best job of releasing the placenta. And does In, nursing help? Absolutely. That's again natural course of things so if you're messing with a mom in such a way that she feels she can't even hold her baby you are thwarting the best way to get the uterus to gather itself and push that placenta out
0: what, right? what's so happening is
1: letting that baby nuzzle that nipple mess around you know there's a lot of nipple stimulation when a little kid's bobbing their head all over your <laughs> chest Not only that but think of this like as they're kicking their way up they're kicking those right. little feet and getting traction in your belly. They themselves are
0: massaging, massaging and stimulating the top of your uterus, but in a way that feels like the most glorious sensation in the world. Versus someone who's maybe <laughs> diving in, with personal fist. space, yeah. yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But that, but yeah. So if a baby latches on, and there's something that happens. Like it, there's a reaction yeah. in the uterus, and that's yeah. that's fascinating. That's sort of nature doing. It's work. Right. In an integrated fashion, Mm. in a
1: timely fashion. Mm. So um, So it all fits together, doesn't it? It all fits together beautifully. And, you know, frankly, even if a mom has an epidural, you know, it's not physiologically more correct for them to do that just because she can't feel it. And it's my um, experience that obstetricians are walking in and out of the birth room without actually noting whether or not a mom has an epidural. Mm -hmm. And I'm to the point in my career where I think that there should be a sign on the door (laughs) that says no epidural in big red letters so that when somebody walks in the room, Mm -hmm. they don't treat that body that's in front of them as if it can't feel anything. Yeah, because frankly, even if it can't, The body knows. Yeah. It will be experiencing what's happening. Yeah. Right? So there's that. But especially because many of my clients don't have epidurals. So when that resident walks in the room and assumes that that mom can't feel anything and without asking, you know, puts a hand into their belly and causes them deep pain that they cry out about... And then turns them and then says, I'm sorry, I just have to do this. I mean, it's it's a form of torture. Like, it's just not right. I have a real problem with this. Sarah I can
0: see it in my face. right Yeah, no, I have a serious I mean, problem with how, of, this, how I see this happening. I mean, we wouldn't let someone on the street do that. I mean, it's not like doctors are people on the street, doctors are like respected and wonderful people. But it, it's, yeah. it's just, um, I think it's a consciousness
1: problem. Yeah. Like, the consciousness around this is not well developed. In most obstetricians, sadly, mm. and because the epidural rate is eighty five percent, it's you. One would say, "Yeah, it's a pretty good assumption when they walk into the room that somebody in there is going to have an epidural." Unfortunately, it's not right. It's not correct, right? And and the to, ass-
0: to assume that that's that
1: they to that. assume that they have an epidural, but also to behave in that way. Yeah, right. I, I mean, there are instances where massaging the uterus is going to be appropriate and necessary and the mother is going to feel it so let's help her cope
0: sort of that's what I'm not seeing right
1: right if I if I see you know if my clients are having baby time together I sit back and allow them that space and I pick up my knitting and I listen Now, if a doctor steps in and does something like that, I don't have time to step in and say, okay, Sarah, um, there's a little bit of difficulty here that we're going to have to address and it's not going to be easy and I, I want to help you through it. So I'm going to make eye contact with you and I'm going to breathe with you while we're delivering your placenta. I'm sorry that this is going to be painful, but we're going to get through it together. So I can do that work as a doula Mm-hmm. But not if nobody cares, right? Of course, yeah. my clients would have liked to have that, right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason why an obstetrician can't learn the same skills and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to do this procedure. It's not going to be comfortable looking my eyes and I will help you through it. While they do this thing with their hands, that's by feel, right? Oh. They don't need their eyes on the mom's belly button to do this procedure. I promise you. I've done it myself many times successfully. Right. So, you know, this is another point where I, what I love about this podcast is hopefully it's another little needle in the voodoo doll of culture change. Um, I don't know, I'm hoping, (laughs) but you know, it means raising the consciousness of birth practitioners, um,
0: and uh, I think it's called bedside manner in some cases.
1: We call it bedside manner.
0: We do <laughs> in this country. Um, yeah. yeah. And, so, so let's speak to and
1: we have to learn manners, don't we? So to be fair, if no one's ever approached this person and said, it's important that you proceed in this emotional, social fashion while you're doing this procedure mm-hmm. on a live human being, yeah. right? they don't know. And and that's not fair to them either. Yeah. So yeah. So what's next? Um,
0: well, I wanted to just highlight so that the stuff that we're talking about, about rubbing the belly to to help give birth to the placenta, mm-hmm. um, that's what's referred to as active management in the document. Yes. So because I ha- I had that question when I first heard that term, I was like, well, active management of the placenta. That's about like aiding the placenta, placenta delivery, yeah. but um, outside just, of what's like the body would do on its own,
1: right? And let me just correct um, what. I have in the past thought was active management, which was all that belly rubbing and pulling on the cord and things of that nature. And it turns out that active management is actually limited to only giving a shot of Pitocin. Oh, all that other stuff that's not included in medical active management. Oh, okay? oh okay. So that's an official medical term, but people do it all the time. As part of, quote unquote, active management. So
0: so maybe it needs to be added here uh, right. into the document. So anyone who's customizing it can say, uh, please let me know if you're going to rub my belly or pull on the cord. I would prefer those not to happen. Yes. But if he you are going to do something, then please tell me before you do so I may prepare my body. Yes. Or my head, even if it's ten seconds or something.
1: Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And okay. on this document it says, as a matter of fact, um uh please only give the routine, otherwise routine, pitocin shot if there is hemorrhaging. Okay, so now You may have had Pitocin during the course of your labor for some reason, and they're going to just open the Pitocin at the end of your labor and let it run in by way of getting your uterus to clamp down nice and tight. Now, that's what your body would do. Mm -hmm. It would send out a flood of Pitocin, or oxytocin, I should say. The baby would breastfeed. That would get more going. And then your placenta would deliver. So there's nothing particularly incorrect about that extra Pitocin at the end of labor. The active management protocol was developed based on studies that showed that malnourished women were extremely prone to hemorrhage at the end of labor, prone to hemorrhage, kinds of hemorrhage that could really um, be um, health and or life-threatening. Okay, and so uh, this idea that okay, well, we we will just prophylactically give these women a shot of pitocin in order to prevent um, um, this hemorrhage. Well, of course, as with so many things in terms of public health, particularly for women, it it was determined that gosh, well, why don't we just give it to everybody? So it doesn't matter if at the end of your pregnancy you're not anemic. You're well nourished, you're physically fit, etc. Right, mm-hmm. you're going to get that shot of Pitocin. So, specifically saying, I made it to the end of my pregnancy in good health, and I would like to let my body, you know, do this last thing it does <laughs> mm-hmm. um, by way of ending my pregnancy. Um, without the pitocin, unless there is actual evidence of hemorrhaging, is fair. Yeah. It's it's not you're not asking for anything that isn't fair. Yep. Um and unfortunately we then also have to add in this other thing that is ubiquitous, which is this manipulation of the uterus and, and the placenta. Please, please refrain from doing any of that unless I am hemorrhaging yeah okay so all right so just time check we're about yeah. 40 minutes so we're going to okay. race through the rest so of this. we're going to race through the rest because all of these things are interrelated and lovely um please save the placenta for us to take home for encapsulation we have provided a tupperware container preferably glass with a, a plastic lid um, for catching the placenta when it's delivered Refrain from routinely suctioning the baby, either in the nose or mouth. That's to help a baby not become overstimulated in the part of the body that needs to latch on to a nipple. <laughs> um, don't rub the baby vigorously to stimulate that unless the baby is in actual um, distress or, or isn't breathing and needs to be stimulated. Um, allow the core to pulse out before
0: clamping. And ask the partner
1: if they'd like to cut the cord.
0: The pulsing out is what? Allowing the baby to get that last nice juicy blood from the placenta. Correct. And by the way, many
1: babies, you know, a placenta could keep pumping oxygenated blood into a baby for sometimes 10, 20 minutes after the baby has been delivered. Hmm. If that baby isn't breathing on their own with their lungs yet, that could be critical. But what we do in our culture is we, we, when we see a baby in distress, we clamp that, cut that, and then take them and stimulate the hell out of them. (laughs) Right? So there's real questions about is that appropriate or not? Right. Like, can we assess whether this baby's doing fine and whether they're getting oxygenation first mm-hmm.
0: before treating it like a dire emergency? So that's just a little. Yeah. It doesn't um, have to be one or the other. Like, if you know, just don't yeah. clamp it, but if the, you want to help the baby in some way, do it. You know, yes. but it yeah. doesn't hurt to have that cord going intact
1: right yeah and even once it stops pulsing there's no reason it has to be immediately clamped and cut Mm. right like it could just they could just hang out like that the placenta could get delivered and you could still hang out like that Mm. right (laughs) so um there's no immediate need to to
0: you know uh separate a baby from its placenta. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so take like, your time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, again, if it doesn't hurt and there's a potential benefit, even if it's not proven or whatever, then, you know, if, it, if it's not hurting anything, you might as well give it a shot mm-hmm. for yeah. the first, like what, 10 minutes or something, uh, Sure. Uh, allow it to pulse out or maybe just for all the time that the baby's on your chest.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know. Yeah.
1: All right. So the next item is delay all routine tests and vaccinations for the first two hours. Um, in California, those routine um, procedures are erythromycin ointment in the eyes, um, hepatitis vaccine and vitamin K shot. Um, and this, this, uh, Plan asks that they be performed in the room with one of the parents holding the baby. It says the only exception is the vitamin K shot, which can be administered within the first two hours so long as one of us is holding the baby. So um, vitamin K is a, a clotting factor that we make in our stomachs, and it takes about And we need a microbiome to produce it. And it takes about seven days before our bodies actually are are absorbing vitamin K. Um, And it's a clotting, it's a blood clotting factor. So the reason why vitamin K is given as a shot routinely um, in America is is to provide the baby with a clotting factor to help avoid stroke, believe it or not, like brain hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think in the case of a baby who's had a particularly traumatic um, labor and birth, uh, maybe if there were forceps or um, or um, vacuum, like anything used. that could break a blood vessel in the head, mm-hmm. I think I would actually want them given that vitamin K shot as fast as possible, which they don't do. <laughs> but in any case, like I think most of the time it's not necessary, but mm. if it were to be, then. Uh, we do have this prophylaxis we can use. Some people want to use oral drops, but unfortunately the problem with that is that babies actually do vomit quite a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, if they have a lot of um, uh, mucus in their stomach, they may vomit it out. And so there's no guarantee that 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 oral dose is going to actually make it and do its job in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doesn't mean it's not okay to try it, and I think that... um, you know, uh, I sort of, you know, my kids didn't get vitamin okay, K. They were born at home. I didn't want it. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to have had strokes, you know, but... It's probably fair to say they didn't. <laughs> pretty, pretty fair, yeah. <laughs> so um, we do not... Next next item, we do not want our baby bathed. Do not wipe our baby. Leave the vernix and amniotic fluid on it. Keep us warm with blankets. We That's a reiteration. Um, mother will breastfeed. Um, mom and partner are going to stay close to baby as much as possible during the hospital stay, no pacifier or bottle for the baby, no finger in the baby, fingers in the baby's mouth. Now that fingers in the baby's mouth is particularly important to discuss because one of the things that pediatricians are looking for when they do the full body examination of your baby is whether or not your baby's palate is closed. So they're actually feeling for a closed palate. Now what's a closed palate meaning? So, so we're, when we're fetuses, our bodies are coming, to, our bodies are being created sort of like this to, to, to two sides coming together in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so when we see spinal cord defect, we see it as showing up as holes at one end or the other, the spinal cord and the associated organs and structures in the middle can sometimes have holes in them. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of a gross way of putting it. And one of the places where that can happen is in the palate. The palate doesn't close completely completely. Um, uh, over the sinuses now there may be skin there but the bones aren't together so there's a hole so there's where a, there can be a hole on the upper palate your baby's upper jaw and to so the roof of their mouth the roof thank you that's the term the roof of the baby's mouth if it's not patent can signal an issue and that's why pediatricians stick a finger in and feel around your baby's mouth now of course it's my opinion that for most babies who don't have this, this this problem, that's overstimulation at a critical time when babies are learning to breastfeed. And I would like it if no babies have to undergo that in the first week, but... Of course, on the other hand, I would certainly want to know if my baby has a simple nervous system issue as mm-hmm. soon as possible. Oh yeah. So we are weighing those two things. And I think it's fair to ask, say, the pediatrician who comes in to examine your baby, when you do the oral exam, could you be just as delicate as you possibly can while doing that? And could you please do that right here? Right. I'm I'm concerned that my baby have the least amount of oral stimulation that is not related to breastfeeding.
0: Yeah, when I, I read that the first time I thought maybe it was just about people like kind of playing with the baby or pacifying the baby. Right. And it is about that. It's it's very common
1: for nurses to t- to do it themselves while messing around with the baby or to tell a partner, here, if they're crying like that, just stick your finger in and they'll be quiet. Well, why don't we examine why they're crying <laughs> and see if there's something we can actually do about the crying. Are they hungry? Are we um, subjecting them to a procedure like a diaper change? I mean, they do not love to be put on their backs. If For them, it feels like an attack to have a diaper change, especially if they're hungry. Mm-hmm. If they've awakened, they are in readiness for feeding they're not expecting a diaper change. They will become apoplectic, just really angry and upset, Mm -hmm. which is going to mean that when mom finally gets them to the breast, they're going to be very tired and very upset. They're not necessarily going to be any longer in good readiness for breastfeeding. Mm. So one of the first things I tell my clients about their hospital stay is, unlike what you're going to be told, don't wake your baby to breastfeed. And don't start with the diaper change. Mm. Hold, have your baby close. And when they stir, have the breast ready for them in proximity. Maybe they just want to wake up, latch on, and kind of nod off back to sleep. They might. Right? And that's good for them. And it's good for mom, right? There's mm-hmm. They've latched on. That's a little bit of uterine stimulation. Um, all of these things are good for moms and babies. So, you know, swaddling your baby up with three blankets with a hat and sticking them in a bassinet across the room from you isn't necessarily going to be the thing that actually promotes a healthy breastfeeding relationship. But it's standard
0: operating procedure in the hospital, and they will frighten you about whether or not to hold your baby in bed with you.
1: Just saying.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember being encouraged to have a lot of skin-to-skin contact, which I thought was wonderful. It is wonderful. Yeah. You know?
1: They're worried that if you fall asleep with a baby in your bed, bad things could happen. Um, but if there are two of you, or mm. three or four, somebody <laughs> can always be
0: holding the baby while it's asleep. Yeah. Right? Who's not sleeping. Okay. We've gone through everything in the document. Mm -hmm. If you have questions, you can email either of us. Go on the Mm -hmm. about page on our website, fourthtrimesterpodcast.com. Email one or both of us. Um, we'll be sure to answer your questions. We also had someone uh, reach out recently through our Facebook page. So please mm-hmm. join our Facebook page. If you didn't know it existed, we have one. Um, sign up and, and join and follow us. We share a lot of cool stuff all the time. So um, as a final reminder, yeah, also sign up for our newsletter on trimesterpodcast.com and sponsor us. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so thank you so much for listening and it'd be so nice for
1: Sarah and me. (laughs) if Everybody who listened to an episode could pitch us a buck. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Great. We would appreciate it. Think of the things we could do if we were meeting costs and having some little extra, to, you know, do go to interesting conferences and
0: present for you guys or, um, Who knows? or produce more episodes more frequently more. and that's, that's something else that we'd probably be able to do so yeah. just a few incentives there thank mm-hmm. you so much and once again thanks for listening and we wish everyone a very happy and well-resourced pregnancy and postpartum yes yay thanks sarah as always so lovely <laughs> likewise yeah. see you later esther yeah ciao